0: On this week's Inside Marketing Podcast, I'll be talking to a genuine industry legend. He's worked on some of the most remarkable, memorable, and impactful campaigns in living memory. In fact, he's so good at advertising, he got a knighthood for it. He truly needs no introduction, so stay tuned as I talk to Sir John Hegarty only on this week's Inside Marketing Podcast.
1: The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media
0: Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing podcast. As I said in the intro, this week is one of those episodes where I get to meet an industry legend. And in terms of guests, well, they don't get any bigger than today's. If anyone qualifies as advertising royalty, it's Sir John Hegarty. Welcome, John.
1: Dave, good to be here. Wonderful talking to you.
0: Great to have you. Um, First, and just to kick off, we were chatting a bit off Mike. How's life at the moment? How's lockdown, life in lockdown or, or, well, not lockdown anymore, but pandemic? Well,
1: it's been sort of tedious up to to this point. I mean, frustrating in the sense of, you know, obviously we have to to adhere to all these rules and regulations for obvious reasons. But in the end, it's taken so much away from us. It's taken away spontaneity, Mm -hmm. the ability to go and just meet up and be with people. I mean, on the business side, it's been actually surprisingly quite good. Um, which isn't a wonderful thing to say in some ways, because for some people it's been appalling. Mm, yeah. But um, it, it's, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm hoping. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we're now approaching the end of this.
0: Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, me too. And um, well, I've. I want to get as much as I can out of this hour, so I'm going to yep. jump straight in. Um, and one of the things I want to talk about to start off with is, is advertising and the impact advertising has in culture. Now. I know it's kind of cliched at this stage, but but that infamous Levi's 501 ad, like you look at the impact. It's probably unfair to benchmark that against anything else, but look at the impact that made in culture. Like, um, of course it, it did a job for the company, the brand, which is what you wanted to do, but launched the career and it came in. It put a 20-year-old song or whatever back to the top of the charts in culture. And then I've seen you talk about this before. Thanks to the advertising standards authority, um, it launched a completely new category in Boxer Shorts. So that was, I mean, as I say, that's a gold standard. It's probably unrealistic to expect any campaign to create that much of an impact. But like, I, I was thinking about this. I can't really think of any campaigns in the last maybe 20 years that not even have had that impact, but that have really made any impact in culture, except maybe um, the guerrilla cabri campaign to a lesser extent. But do you think that, that there's any campaigns that have created any impact in culture at the moment? And if not, um, which, which they probably haven't created that amount of impact, do you think it's because the industry's not doing good work?
1: Well, that's a a very good question, actually. First of all, I think there have been some campaigns. I think um, I look at the uh, Marmite campaign, Love It or Hate It, um, which has actually elevated uh, the concept of being Marmite. You know, here we are, we're talking Mm -hmm. about a bloody yeast spread, aren't we? For God's sake, come on. But we've elevated that into uh, a situation where people actually talk about somebody being Marmite. I think... The big question is all great communication is trying to be a part of culture in some way or another. You're trying to elevate a brand status within society and within culture to make it more important. So that's fundamentally important when you're trying to do that. I think today we're seeing less of that. I think that's because people have lost faith in the broadcast concept because technology companies have convinced brands that all they need to do is to focus on uh, that market that's buying their product. You don't need to waste all this money talking to broadcast, which is, of course, a complete misunderstanding of how advertising and brands build fame Mm. uh, and build uh, their reputation. So that is part of the problem that we have
0: at the moment. And like it's probably it doesn't seem to. I might be being a bit unfair, but but advertising doesn't seem to push the boundaries that much these days. So I've seen you talk about lots of different things, and you said um, that like there's no trick to selling great work. There's no trick to selling work into clients. You just have to convince the client that you're solving their problem, not your problem. So, um, but just generally, I don't see as many risks being taken anymore. So, do you think that is a factor of maybe the agency not being good at convincing the client, or is it like is it bad client or bad agency?
1: Well, I think it's a bit of both, really. As I said, I think clients have lost faith in the big brand concept, uh, the concept of broadcast, the concept of doing something daring. I think agencies have lost, the, are losing the skill of understanding how to create something truly powerful in 60 seconds or under. You know, we seem to live in a world today where you, you, you create content mm. um, and you take sort of two or three minutes to tell a story which – you know, when I was, you know, working absolutely in the in the business, you took 30 to 60 seconds. It's one of those bizarre things. You know, one of the things you have to really understand that the market is not always right. Uh, and this concept that the consumer is always right. No, they're not. Mm. They're often horribly wrong. And brands can often get it horribly wrong. And right now, I think lots of brands are getting it horribly wrong. We're not building big famous brands that resist competitive pressure, that that can uh, sustain their futures. And it's because we have a a whole raft of marketing people who believe, you know, the answer is technology. The answer isn't technology. Technology is is a means by which to communicate your idea. The answer is to have a brilliant, great idea.
0: Yeah, it's and this comes up a lot when we talk about it in the podcast, particularly when I talk to anybody from a creative background. I'm always amazed at how much um, value is given to focus groups in, in, in link tests and creatives. So the idea that you'd hire an agency and then not trust that agency and go out and, and ask a room full of people what they think of yeah, you just seems bizarre to me. And we are kind of, we're just outsourcing a creative process. We're buying a dog and barking ourselves. I just don't know why, um, why people do that so much. Um, I read... Uh, I looked at a lot of stuff when I was kind of prepping to, for this just to try and kind of have some informed questions. Now, I, One of the things that I thought was interesting, you have said that before that this idea of somebody being creative uh, or not is nonsense. You believe that everybody's creative. <coughs> and to an extent, I agree with that, but, but not everybody can make great advertising. So um, first of all, what's it take to make great ads? And secondly, do you actually think this notion that a great idea can come from anywhere, do you buy into that or not?
1: Well, uh, you know, I think the, the, to answer that first part of that question, yes, we are by definition created. That's what separates us out from the animal kingdom as as sapiens, which is what we are. We're sapiens. Um, of course, not everybody earns their living by it. Mm. Um, and that's the difference. It's just that, you know, we can all sing. Um, you don't want to hear me sing. I'm I can actually army. sing. <laughs> no, we don't. But you know, some people earn their living by it. Right? The same with creativity. So we must get people to understand that we are inherently creative, uh, and that's fundamentally important to our existence. And then getting people to understand how to employ that, how to use that when you are engaged in the creative industries is crucially important. I think you know we we've always had this situation where people have wanted to check and. Uh, uh, and try and kind of guarantee that what they're doing is going to work. It's always been there. It's not, it's not nothing new. Um, it's the uncertainty that people are trying to resolve. Mm. But of course, you can't. You're trying to create something different, and that's the whole point of a brand is to be different. And there's no point in you know you do you know I'm I'm now running uh, helping run a, an early stage investment company which which helps brands. Uh, ideas get money and cash and advice and grow. You, you know, no, nobody walks into us and says, you know, by the way, I've come up with a completely same idea as uh, Prete Manger, uh, and I'm going to do it exactly like this. Mm. Of course, you wouldn't put any money into it. What you're looking for is difference. And of course, when you're doing that, which is what a brand should be doing, it's very difficult then trying to judge whether that's going to work or not. You just have to go and do it. But I, I've always believed that. You know, every marketing director, virtually every marketing director go, gets down on their knees at night and goes, dear God, please, will you make it a science? Uh, and God yeah. answers back. You know, I, I've tried. I Genuinely, I've tried. But, you know, I gave them free will and look what happened. Yeah. So the, it's that that sense of uh, we've always been obsessed since the beginning of time with three things. Um, we've been obsessed with speed, access and the future.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we want to. Go faster, so we got on a horse because that was faster than running. Um, We invented the arrow because that went faster than the spear. Uh, And we've always tried to predict the future because, you know, that's how we survive. And this is an instinct within us that we feel the need to completely understand the future when you can't. Mm. And that's what you have to try and get great marketing people to understand. But sadly, I think there are fewer and fewer of them.
0: Mm, Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so I'll give you that, and I'll concede the fact that everybody's creative to a degree. But you made a point before, and you said that great creatives are outsiders. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I've always felt that you know um, creative people are observers. You know one of the things I always say about a creative career is you probably have ten years.
2: Mm.
1: Um, uh, and if you think about other aspects of creativity, you, you know you look at painters or you look at musicians, right? You have ten years. You have a purple patch. You do your great work, and then if you're lucky, you can go on repeating that. Now, some people obviously break out of that. In our industry, in the communications industry, you have to come in every day and have a new idea every day. Mm -hmm. So you've got to work out how you're going to make that happen, how that's going to function, and you're an outsider in the sense of you're an observer. I think great creative people are observers. They observe things. They look at things. They kind of and uh, that helps your creativity because you're seeing things from a different point of view, You're not sitting with an entrenched attitude. Mm. You're looking at other influences and you're hoping those influences influence you. So I think, I do think great creative people to a, to a large extent are outsiders. If you look at them, they have, you know, they're either immigrants, they're either left-handed, right. They, they cut some weird thing about them that mm. separates them out from the mass. And uh, I, I would recommend this. Everybody read the wonderful book by Walter Isaacson of Leonardo da Vinci. And he was an amazing man who was, you know, he was gay. He was a vegetarian. <laughs> he was illegitimate. He was also left-handed, not that made much. But he was a genuine outsider. And I think that, in a sense, gave him that desire to look and observe and see things. So I think that's what makes great creative people.
0: Yeah. A great point. And I, and I know, yeah, you know, there's creativity in every everything, but as you say, not not everybody earns a living from it. Um, now, one of the things that you've been so successful at in your career is this idea of being irreverent. How important has that been for you? And why is that really important?
1: Well, I think when you approach um, whatever whatever you're doing, whatever part of the creative world you're operating in, you have to have a philosophy. You have to believe in something. What are you, what are you trying to say? You've been given this voice so to speak now what is it you're saying and I don't care if you're a simple designer designing swing tickets for supermarket shelves or clothing or whatever it might be you approach it with a point of view you have an attitude to why am I doing this how do I go about doing it and I think you therefore have to develop that philosophy and I I kind of was asked a question it was many many years ago uh, and I was asked to give a lecture on what I looked for in a great idea and I went well something i really like which i thought was could be make a very short talk <laughs> so i really had to think about it and i suddenly realized the things that i loved the things that really turned me on were irreverent mm. because in a sense they were constantly challenging the work that got me into advertising, the art I liked, uh, the movies I liked, the writing I liked had an irreverence to it, and I realised irreverence is a powerful force because what it's doing is it for- is forcing you to reconsider and to think again. And so, in this talk I, I gave, it was it was uh, as I say, many many years ago because I went to art school and I did a bit history of art. I talked about how art moved from being Reverence, so if you look at the Renaissance era, artist's job was to sort of revere, you know, make people believe. So Michelangelo paints the Sistine Chapel, he's trying to get you believing God and the power of the church and all of those things, and because power rested within the authorities, within the state or within the crown, or whoever it was. And as we move forward. Um, this is a sweeping observation. And society began to get greater knowledge. It began to question more wealth and education grew. We began to challenge. We began to say, well, I don't necessarily agree with that. And then out of that, of course, comes the great uh, cartoonist and people like Gilray. Out of it comes the Dardarist movement, which challenges the absurdity of war. And society began to question. And in doing that, it, it kind of becomes more... Um, vibrant uh, uh, and relevant. And if you're working in advertising, in a sense, so that was a big broad tweak. Mm. So if you're working in advertising, what you're doing is you're trying to say, look, these the Levi's are better than those genes. You may not say it directly like that, but these are better than those. So you're getting people to challenge a point of view all the time. And irreverence is a powerful way of doing that. And it works for organizations. You know, it works for if an organization has an irreverence mm. at its heart. It constantly challenges, and that's why I love it, and that's why I, I realised it was sort of it was running through my work, and I enjoyed it. Mm,
0: yeah, yeah, I totally agree with all that. Um, now there is a danger, as I did these podcasts, that I am constantly looking back and saying how great things used to be. So. I'm not sure when the golden age of advertising was. Now, arguably, it should be now because when we look at the amount of channels that are available, the amount of digital touch points, it's just the amount of stuff that we have and 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 how easy it is to produce and create things. Maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing, but arguably it could be now, but clearly it's not given all the things that we talked about and ads don't cut through. Now, there was a golden generation of talent when you started out working and and I think one of the things, it's well-known fact that for creative industries, you need a kind of clash of cultures, you need diversity. So your background was, um, you've Irish in there, it was, it was working class mm. and lots of brilliant people you worked with similarly, like David Bailey, famous photographer. So creative industries more than most need this diversity. But when I think about what's happening today, again, it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's more of a profession now, it's more scholarly. And as a result, I think maybe we've just lost a little bit of that creativity or specialness to a degree because the agencies now tend to, I mean, we all hire, particularly in in Ireland, which is small, we hire from the same schools. There's so many marketing kind of courses online today. What we seem to be creating is a kind of like a a conveyor belt of of ad people on on a production line. And maybe just coincidentally, that's why it's not as prevalent today as it used to be. But, But thinking about the industry now or more recently versus kind of how maybe unprofessional is the wrong word, but it was a little bit less professional back in the day. Do you think we're diverse enough? And are we just kind of hiring all the same type of people? Are we are we just manufacturing a production line now?
1: Yeah, I think that, well, I, I, again, I think you make a, an excellent point. I mean, I mean, in a sense, it is a creative industry and it needs within that mavericks. And I think today we have fewer mavericks, we have fewer people who are prepared to challenge, who are prepared to kind of, uh, not accept the status quo, we have professionalized mm. the industry in, in, in a kind of way. And I can always remember when, you know, I was sort of growing up in it and people talk about we're not taken seriously enough or we're, mm. we're not professional enough and all that. And everybody nodded their heads wisely. Uh, and now that we have that, <laughs> sort of we have that status, I'm not sure we have it that much, but we now realize that we're, we're now accepted like this and it's all become a bit boring. Mm. Um, And we are kind of churning out uh, sort of copies of each other in a way, which is the huge danger, rather than looking at people who are complete outsiders and who think in a totally different way. You know, I was very lucky. I was, you know, came into the industry. I was born in 1944. I just then became a post-war baby and that explosion of opportunity, mm. the, the, the the way culture was opening up, the youth culture was taking over. And also the important thing is the huge change in a way is that culture was affected from the ground up. Mm. It was from the, from working people up, the working classes up. Prior to that, it had always been top down. It had always been the educated classes who, who determined culture. And that was a big change. And you sort of want to see something like that. Where is that going to come from today? Where is it going? To, who's going to be challenging
2: it? Mm.
1: And I, I do think we become obsessed with kind of tokenism rather than with ideas. And you know, you know, diversity is fundamentally important to creativity. We become obsessed about it. We don't naturally embrace it. So therefore, the, the sort of concern is about being diverse rather than about being diverse with our ideas, Mm. uh, and that diversity will come from a diverse workforce. But Mm. if you're just obsessed with diversity for its own sake, then you know, it won't work. I mean, so when, when I came into the business, nobody said we want more working class people in the advertising yeah. industry. Uh, we, we just came into it because yeah. we wanted to do it. We were able to go to art school. We went to design school and I was able to do it. And we were just there, you yeah. know, and, and it was expanding and they had to employ us, but they couldn't find enough people from Eton and whatever it yeah. might have been. <laughs> so yeah. we got in and we made that change. But it was happening all across, you know, music. You look at... The, the, the where music was changing, where fashion was changing, where theatre was changing, where writing was changing. It was all coming from the working class up, which was mm. great, which has made it so vibrant. So today we've got to look at where is it going to come from today? Mm. If you just employ tokenism, I want to have a more diverse workforce. Work I don't think that's necessarily going to get you there, right, as yeah. opposed to I want more diverse ideas.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Um, if I was going to ask one question, I think that this one is the one that I, I'm really interested in your point of view on, because it kind of sums up a lot of things that we've talked about already. So, you know, this idea about the industry, like becoming more professional is a good thing on balance, I think. But like everything else, as we just talked about there, there's it's not all upside. So, you know, advertising, I, th- I think advertising is a business because it's creative. It involves taking risks, per- particularly if you want to do something different, you have to take a risk. But then, business culture minimises risk so now I've heard you say and you've been very clear and very vocal about this you can't have a creative company unless creative people are running it so and that's something I definitely see less than less today. so we've seen um, even in the last couple of years Droga 5 and closer to home Rothko a brilliant Irish creative agency who have got international fame they've been both acquired by, by Accenture so you know what happens is no, know in Rothko's case I know David Droga hasn't left but in Rothko's case the founding fathers have left and now the agency's kind of partly managed or, or fully managed by other people, you know, Accenture people. And and that business won't be the same. So I think given that's the way the world is going, do you still believe now today that you can't have a creative company unless it's run by creative people? And do you think, this is not a loaded question, do you think agencies can survive the departure of their founding fathers?
1: Quite a few questions. I'll do the, I'll do the last one first, actually. I, my wonderful partner, John Bartle, who is one of the wisest men I ever know, he did actually sort of say once, And this was when we were, you know, being hugely successful. He just said, you know, John, he said to me, I think agencies are a bit like bands. They have a moment in time, they write great music, and then they disband and they go. And he was saying it in a very thoughtful way, which is, don't expect to be around forever, right? You know, I think that was the, that was a great observation, and I, I I thought it at the time. I thought it's a very interesting way of thinking about a, a creative company. Because we should talk about a creative company. Really, it's a bit like a band. Mm. And you know, you do your great stuff, you do this fantastic work, you have a, you make a mark on on culture, uh, you have uh, enormous success, and then you move on. Mm. And I think there's an element of truth in that. I genuinely, it was it was funny. That it wasn't my life. About you You can't have a creative company without creative people at the top. I was very lucky to have. I got uh, at lunch with John Lasseter before he was you know terrible things that he's been accused of at uh, Pixar, Mm. and it was he who made the point. And he was talking about how what went wrong at Disney when he was thrown out, and then he was asked to go back in again. And he made it was a very simple point: You, you you cannot have a creative company without creative people being at the top. And I think that. The sadness for our industry today is there aren't enough creative people making waves, mm. uh, deciding on change. Because all the change that really came out of the creative industry in terms of ideas, it came from the creative people. If you look back at the history of advertising, we talk not about, you know, the planners or whoever they might be. We talk about Mm-hmm. Bill Birnbeck, we talk about David Ogilvy. we talk about in our industry here, you will talk about David Abbott and John Webster. And, and it's these people, the creative people, who make the changes. So creative people are got to stand up and start demanding we are going to do things differently mm-hmm. because we have different ideas. Technology is there to help provide us, disseminate those ideas and, and understand it. So you've got to have creative people at the top of the industry. And it's only our industry in a way you look at it, you know, if you look at the music industry, well, it's people like Mick Jagger or Taylor Swift, or she decides, you know, what's going to happen. Mm. You look at architecture, Frank Geary is one of the great architects. Frank Lloyd Wright, when he was alive, obviously, one of the great architects. You know, and it, it, in the publishing world, it might be publishers, but it, it's J.K. Rowlings who calls yeah. the shots. You know, I write the books, you know, mm. without me, you don't have a business. It's only our industry has allowed ourselves to be dominated by my sort of management, and we've got to break that down. And if we don't mm. break that down, we won't have much of a future. So I, I do think it, it, creative people are there to make change, and it's for them to go out and do it. And, mm. and do think of yourself like a band. And I you know, used to say to the, the management people on the side when I talked about creative people at the top, and, and they would always say, me, what about us? And I said, well, think about yourself like the manager of a band. Mm. That's what you are. You know, you're, you're, you're Andrew Lou Golden to the Rolling Stones. Um, you're, you're that great manager who helps, guides, creates the opportunities, makes it happen for them, keeps the nonsense out of the way so they can go and create. That's what we've got to have.
0: Mm. Do you think that there's uh, – I don't know how to ask this in the right way, but, like, is it creative people's fault for not, as you said, they're putting their hand up and saying, listen, I want it." we want to be the people that run the business. So do do you – you know, is, is it the big bad financial people have taken over the world or have creative people, does it suit the creative people just go, oh, yeah, I don't want to get involved in running the agency. I just want to do what I do.
1: I think, it's, I think it is the creative people. I blame the creative people. Okay. I really do. Genuinely. I, and I, I adore, obviously, I am a creative and I adore them. I love mm. them. But they've got lazy. They've yeah. got, oh, I've gone for the money. I mean, when we started BBH back in 1982, nobody ever talked about money. We talked about ideas. We talked mm. about, how can we create something better? How can we produce a piece of work that we're proud of, that we want other people to be proud of? And that was our driving force, to create great work. Mm. Nobody we can even didn't sit around and say, oh, wow, within five years, we could all be millionaires. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's happening today. People are setting agencies up right. on the basis of, I'm going to sell it. Mm. Well, you know, as soon as, you know, I always say, you know, money has a voice, it doesn't have a soul. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's important. Of course, we have to, be, but you have to understand what it's there for. Mm-hmm. It's there for to make things happen. Um, it, you know, and that's where I think we're going wrong.
0: Yeah, great, uh, great point. Um, you, you mentioned BBH there, and when you when you think about BBH and and any of the other agencies that you've been involved in, you know. You talk about culture and culture always, uh, as you put it this way, it always came out of things that you did. It wasn't like, and I, and I see this happen quite a lot. It wasn't like you, you sat in a boardroom and said, right, we've got to figure out what our culture is. Um, it just <coughs> happened organically. Now, one of the things that, that you said before, and I totally agree with this, that you said the irony of the ad industry is that agencies don't think or act like brands anymore. That's something that BBH were really brilliant at. They behaved like a brand. They promoted themselves, kind of very market marketable and clever ideas. So they, they practiced they, the, the stuff that you're employed to do for clients, arguably you were doing for your for your own promotion of the agency. So can you talk to me about some of the things you did and then why don't agencies do this kind of stuff anymore today? Well,
1: uh, I, I think, again, I'll ask the last bit first, which is, I think they don't believe in themselves and also I think they don't believe in that they're, they're, they're transient. They think, God, I'm going to be selling this in five years' time. So, mm-hmm. you know, why spend time worrying about that is is my belief. I don't know. But, it seems like that, but traditionally agencies have always been bad at mm. marketing themselves. I mean, it's the old story of, you know, the cobbler and his bad shoes. Yeah, you know, it's it's okay. I don't know why it is, but we've always been appalling at it. But when we started BBH, we one of the things that that we did is, um, uh, and it was Nigel Boba, my partner, who said this. He said, John. Um, I I want us to be absolutely certain that people understand we're a creative company. And, you know, I was sort of nodding my head in approval, of course, as the creative director. And he said, so what we're going to do is we're not going to do speculative, creative work for pitches. Now at the time, just so people understand what you did is a client would come to you and say, we'd like you to pitch for our business and, um, we want you to show us some ideas.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And we said, we aren't going to do that. Um, because that undermines our creativity. Mm. Uh, What we will do is we will give you a strategic, we'll look at the strategic direction your brand is taking, and we think that is probably where it's going wrong, uh, and that has to be put right. And so we employ that to Mm. demonstrate that we were doing something different. Now, we got a huge amount of criticism at the time. I can remember editorial saying, PBH have lost the plot. They don't know what right. they're going to do. It'll work for a certain period of time, and then they'll have to pitch like everybody else. And of course, we didn't. We kept not doing it. And of course, it, our reputation grew. And fortunately, it worked. Uh, at the time, I did think Nigel had gone slightly mad, actually. But anyway, I kind of, <laughs> you know, I trusted him. You know, but uh, but he was absolutely right. And uh, it got to the point. I remember John Butler came into my office, very laughing, and he said, "You won't believe this." He said. We're pitching for this business. This is about after, this is about six years after we've been going. And um, one of the other agencies that's pitching is complaining that we're on the the shortlist. Uh, and they've complained because we won't be doing any creative work, and they will be. And the prospective client had gone on to John to tell him this to say, what should you do about it? And John said, well, you know, you, you haven't asked them to do creative work. They have mm. said that's the way they do it. And what was so incredible is within six years it was seen as an unfair advantage on our part not but it was pitch. a way of, yeah to not pitch <laughs> and it was a way of kind of defining who we were and uh, you know saying we are different we aren't like all the others and uh, it was amazing that that other agencies didn't mm-hmm. understand that point we didn't want to have all the kind of business we some business wasn't right for us you know yeah. you know if you go in and buy a ferrari uh, uh, and and you don't you know you don't go in and say well where i going to put the child seat you know <laughs> yeah. and the federal look at you and go well you don't buy a Ferrari if you're going to- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but you know so as an agency we all kind of thought like oh people thought like that but I think just on that point about it coming out of your culture we we ended up with um, a black sheep as our yeah. our symbol and again that came out of just the culture of BBH. We didn't sit down in 1982 and say, and oh, by the way, we're going to have a Black Sheep as our logo. We had a set of signatures, and the idea was that it was us signing on the dotted line to commit to what we were saying. But eventually, it was about it was 1995. So this is now, we do the maths, I can't remember 13 years, is it after we'd started? We were moving in to this building in Floral Street, um, in in uh, Kingley Street in Soho. Mm-hmm. And we wanted a big sign outside saying BBH. And the architect said, Well, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to do it. Planning permission won't let you do it. But you can put your logo outside. And uh, so, what's your logo? And we both looked, Nigel and I, I remember the meeting, Nigel and I looked at each other and said, Logo? We're an advertising agency. So we don't <laughs> have a logo. We thought, <laughs> Whoa, But then we suddenly stopped and we said, Well, The very first piece of work we did for Levi's was uh, a poster advertising Black Levi's. And it was a series of white sheep going in one direction with a black sheep Mm. going in the opposite direction. And then it said, when the world, Black Levi's, when the world is in Jews act. And we talked about us always being the black sheep. And we we took that piece of creative work all the time. And we looked at each other and we said, we do have a logo. We keep Mm. talking about the black sheep. And literally at that moment, we said, so, the, the architect, it's a black sheep, the black sheep mm. can go outside. And that's how we got to it. But the point about that was it came out of what we did. Yeah. We didn't invent it, it came through the work we were doing. Mm. So, listen to the work you're doing. Again, philosophy, you know, mm-hmm. what kind of philosophy do you have? Do you believe in something? And um, employ that belief.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, you said earlier on, you want to be different. You can't do the same as everyone else. So, quite brave to say we're not going to pitch. I guess, you know, you got to be pretty good, though. If you're not going to be pitching, you have to, you can't just be different. You've got to be good. Um, so, that's it. That's it. <laughs> well, a well a that is point. the
1: answer, isn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You
1: soon, you soon, you soon find out. Yeah. You? yeah. D- did Books, you, that's not working.
0: <laughs> did you insure the creative department for a million? Pound Sterling is that folklore? Or did that yeah, happen?
1: That that's a that's a great Charlie Charlie Sarchie story. I I was um, uh, a founding partner in Saatchi and Sarchie back in nineteen seventy, right. and Charlie was the master of PR. Just total total ma. He was a brilliant writer, but he was the master of PR. And it literally he was just you know it was one week and there was no news. He was obsessed with being in the press, and. Uh, He said, look, we haven't got any business yet. We we haven't won anything in the last couple of weeks, and we haven't got any campaigns breaking, and we've got to get something in the press. And um, he he came up with this idea, and he thought, I know what I'm going to do to just demonstrate how creative we are and how much value we put on our creativity. I'm going to insure the creative department for a million pounds. Now, remember, this is like 1972 or something, so a huge amount of money. Got a friend of his who is um, in the insurance business to, to organise the policy, and um, and he then said, if you want to hire anybody or you to take anybody out of BBH in terms of poach them, you'd have to pay a transfer fee. And 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 so it was a pretty, completely mm. invented. Yeah. And he got onto the back page of the Sunday Times Business News. I can remember we were all sitting on a bench in Golden Square in Soho, like a sort of you know football. Team and uh, completely invented, but a brilliant yeah. example of PR and yeah. how you manage the press and how you promote what it is that you believe in. Mm. No, it's a great, great example of um, yeah. how to make press it, work
0: for you. And it's something that agencies don't, as you say, right? You don't do enough of. hasn't um, often criticised for trying to manipulate people and and like the inference in that is that it's untruthful. But you, you've made a point before that the truth is the most, power, most powerful strategy you can have. So, I mean, just sidebar, an ad. whenever I see a fly landing on food, there's this piece of ad copy that always goes through my mind and I I saw that like I didn't even know you guys did it like I saw this like 30 yeah. 30 years ago and I still remember like that still runs through my mind that ad copy <laughs> so the truth is so powerful in an industry where we're seen as untruthful how does that work it,
1: it, well it's one of those bizarre things that that people think the function of advertising is to disguise the truth is the sort of fabricate is to sort of you know gloss over, is to, is to make is to say things which aren't necessarily truthful. And don't get me wrong, there is a lot of advertising out there that does that. But the most powerful advertising, the most memorable advertising, the most successful advertising, founds itself in the truth. It, it establishes a truth and then demonstrates via that truth, brilliant creativity, um, to, to make its point. I mean, I talked about Marmite. You know, Marmite mm. sort of discovered this wonderful thing that people loved it or hated it. And and instead of trying to disguise, oh, we won't talk about the hate bear, oh people love, they said, No, why don't we just tell people some mm. people love it, some people hate it. And out of this truth, and it and it can be a sort of interesting observation. That's the clever thing. It's a strategic thing, piece of thinking that says, Do you know, we've got this strange thing going on, love, hate. Why don't we turn that into a piece of advertising? Then creates the most famous brand. Mm. That's what I mean about telling the truth. I mean, people say to me, so what's been your latest piece of work that you like? And actually, I did really like the launch of um, Oatly, mm. the, the oat milk drink um, over the last five years. And I thought it was a brilliant example of how... You take a very interesting product, you talk about how it's made, you talk about how, uh, what it delivers, and you do it in a very distinctive and memorable way. Mm. But essentially, you know, um, it just says it's not milk made, not made from cows. You mm-hmm. know? And, it, and it did a very interesting flip on that and, and how it worked. And it was a very distinctive piece of advertising. For me, that was another example of the truth being powerful. Yeah. You've got to accept the truth. Yeah. You're trying to build a long-term relationship with somebody. How do you build a long-term relationship with somebody if you're se- telling them lies? It
0: yeah. doesn't work. No, absolutely. I, I And I love the Marmite example because it is, you know, it, you're absolutely right, it's a truth. But What I love about that is, is that, it stayed on as a campaign. They've they've managed to refresh it. Even the I don't know what's the latest one—the kind of DNA or not the latest one. It was a DNA test one a while ago that I saw. And it's yeah. just so it's just so simple. It's the same it's yeah. the same story, but it's just reimagined. And it just always as creative work is just brilliant. So it's a really nice campaign. Yeah, I, I really well, like it. That, that
1: that's another point that we've we've forgotten about creating long term campaigns. Commitment.
2: Mm. You
1: know, great brands commit to something. And here we've got a situation where brands change all the time and they just walk to the advertising. And they think that's what you've got to do rather than constantly refresh. And, you know, and I think you make such a good point there, Dave, and I think that's brands have forgotten that, that you're establishing a relationship with somebody, keep it the same mm. and, you know, constantly refresh. It was interesting, actually. I was watching something. There was something about Guinness and it said, you know, and it made a point about, oh yeah, good things come to those who wait. And and I thought, is it interesting that, that, that the public still love talking mm. about that? Whereas mm. Guinness have moved on. Yeah. And they took up, you know, that's like three campaigns ago. And I think they make a huge mistake. Guinness, if you're if you're listening, please listen, you make a huge mistake when you keep changing. Yeah. You keep changing and you stop that development of a relationship. And you could have a brilliant campaign if you were to go back to that fundamental truth of Guinness. Mm. Good things—you've got to wait for it. Yeah. You know, what a lovely thing to say in a speeding world. No, they dumped it. And yeah, gone for something else.
0: No, it's, I, it's a bit I,
1: like I, I went to see the Bond film uh, on, over the weekend, the new Bond film, mm. Craig's last one. And and I always use Bond as an example of, of kind of don't talk about other brands talk about. But that's a, a franchise, it's a value, it's a brand in a sense. And 1962, when it was launched, who knows what it was worth? Maybe I don't know, 20 million mm. today, it's worth billions, you know. And and you know, they haven't changed the end line license to kill, yeah. They haven't changed double, well, you know, they refresh 007 all the time. The story is fundamentally the same in some sense or another, but they constantly refresh it. Yeah. Uh, you know, they haven't changed, said, Well, we shouldn't say license to kill anymore, we should say license to thrill or you know that's what a, that's what a brand would be yeah. wouldn't they they'd be yeah. so stupid to change it absolutely but anyway, that's a good way to
0: think about. Yeah, it. yeah I and i agree because um you know i see it all the time but i see brands we get a brief where we stand for this and then i've worked on it too long so then new marketing director comes in and they, they completely changed about something else now you mentioned guinness one of the clients i work on now is heineken and something i was talking to him about i got i admire the fact that they've kind of stayed the personality has always stayed the same. It's kind of, it's not laugh out loud funny. It's witty. I mean, right back to, <coughs> uh, you mentioned this before, the water in Mallorca. I'm not going to try and say yeah. it in a Cockney accent, the water in Mallorca. <laughs> and right through to now, it puts a smile on your face. It's not too worthy and po-faced. And it's just remarkable yeah. to see that consistency that a brand has stayed true to it. So, And I think we do, you're right, we forget that. We can't, we're like people. We, we we can't show up and be kind of schizophrenic and be totally different people at different times. You know, it's just people like you totally, know, our, yeah. our, our values. So, yeah, yeah. I think we, we forget that sometimes.
1: Well, uh, it, pl- it plays to marketing directors' egos, isn't it? I come in and I change everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm going to make my mark rather than, you know, say exactly. my job is to go on making it grow. And that's because. I don't think marketing is taken seriously enough. Mm. Communication is taken seriously enough at the top of a company. Mm, I mean, I you mean. wouldn't go into a Ferrari and say, you know, I don't, I, you know, I, you know that dancing, prancing, wash you've got is a bit old-fashioned. Yeah. I need to have something new.
0: We're discontinuing red as well. It's not working. Yeah, that's
1: right. No, we've done red. We're going to move on. You know? Yeah. No, you'd be thrown out. Absolutely.
0: You know? <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Um, now, the turnover in our industry today is absolutely phenomenal like particularly in ireland because we've got tech giants on our doorstep and basically you know if you're if you're a young kid and you're getting paid whatever in an agency you can get paid 30 40 more for an easier life going to work for google or facebook so you were given advice early in your career follow the opportunity not the money would you give that still to somebody today or do you think just the world has moved on that's not the world we live in anymore
1: no i i think that is still fundamentally true i i i kind of get slightly disappointed when i see you know, people say, well, well, I'm going to go to such and such because they're going to pay the X. And, and I, I sort of understand it. It's kind of, you know, but, you know, if, if you're starting out in your career and you're going to have probably several careers, you're never going to, you know, um, uh, you're never going to just have one anymore in a way it's going to alter and change, but you've got to do things which you love. You've got to mm-hmm. do things which you're going to be passionate about. And You know, Somebody once said to me, so, John, all those years in advertising, what would you say is the defining factor in terms of success in the people that you work with in the companies and the marketing directors you work with? And I I really genuinely believe it, it is the ones that succeeded most weren't just the professional ones, the ones that could do it. Yes, of course, that's fundamentally important. But it was the ones who loved what they were doing and loved the business they were in. Those are the ones that were most successful, in my view. And I think you and yourself have got to say that. Mm -hmm. Go for the opportunity, not the money. And in your youth, you can do that. And that's the way you'll develop your career. If you go for the money, it'll be short-lived and uh, you won't have a long-term career.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I I definitely agree. Now... I won't keep you too much longer, but there's just a couple of things I want to ask you. There's a question that keeps coming up, like generalist, specialist. So when I think about advertising, I know how I got into advertising because I, I did an economics degree and I didn't want to work in finance. So I always kind of, how people have gotten into advertising, maybe less so today because it's more of a profession, but you, you were kind of, I think you, you wanted to be an artist, but you were told you're not going to make money as an <laughs> artist. You know, brilliant copywriters don't want to be journalists. So there's this thing about advertising as being... A kind of a career for the nomadic, the lost, the people who kind of don't fit in here or there. So in, on the one hand, there's slightly, you know, more of a generalist. You're not quite a specialist in in certain topics. So it does favour the generalist to a degree. Um, and, and people I know that are quite good, they have a kind of mix of different things. Um, so, but that's on an individual basis. But do you, do you think that an agency needs to be built up of specialists and not generalists? So in a couple of individuals at the top maybe can be generalists. It's a good skill to have. But... Do you think there are roles that suit the generalist in an agency today or do you think it should be entirely specialists?
1: Well, um, you you kind of asked that in a kind of number of ways. I think there's a great mistake today in believing that you can do lots of different things. Mm. And I'm a great believer in the specialist. And what you do is you bring a, a whole group of specialists together, people who are brilliant at what they do. But This specialist must have the ability to look out, must have the ability to kind of be interested in other things. doesn't matter that you're a specialist. What matters is that you have that ability to to look outward, be engaged, to be fascinated, to be uh, always questioning and asking why. But I'm a great believer in uh, uh, specialism. And I, you know, often when I give talks to students, coming to the industry and, and I talk about this. So I say to them, you know, so I say, you know, you need to be a specialist, you need to believe in what, do one thing and do it brilliantly. You often get they like go, well, you know, you get the question back. But, I'm, you know, I love doing a bit of music and I, I love making a bit of film and I love editing and I'm, I do a bit of illustration. I say, look, all of that is great. Mm. I'm not saying don't do that, but I'm saying in the end, and the way I answer it is I say, If I offered you the chance to talk to somebody about filmmaking and I said you can talk to Quentin Tarantino or you can talk to somebody who does it on Thursday afternoon, which one do you think you're going to talk to or want to talk to? And I think I know the answer to that. It's Quentin Tarantino. Why is that? Because he's specialist. He doesn't do stage plays. Mm -hmm. He, He doesn't do television. He does movies. And he's passionate about movies. And that's what makes him interesting. And I think this because you can do it, doesn't mean to say you should do it. Mm. And and I'm it's slightly that, but I love the quote, which I, I wish I thought of it, but I didn't, but I had to say. And I, I don't know who said it, but I love the quote which says, we're all artists, but some of us shouldn't exhibit. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, we're all created, but some of us should stop doing other things. Mm. And I think... You know, and I I know some very successful people who say to me, oh, you know, I do a bit of music composing, I do a bit of that. And ah, no, it's great, but you're never going to change mm. a factor of that industry unless you're really specialist mm. at it. Uh, and there are a few Leonardo da Vinci's. They come around about once every 500 years. But, mm. you know, don't bank on the fact that you're going to be a Leonardo. I don't think so. Read the book, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah no I, w- I will do um we've chatted about some ads there you know but that you've your eggs has created and you, and you mentioned the only one but it, i'm going to ask you a question if you think about like what's your favorite ad of all time that 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 you weren't involved in so any year <coughs> at any time what is your we you can only take one ad with you what is it
1: yeah well it would be it would be um uh the volkswagen ad uh it's called funeral and um, it's it is the most brilliant ad. Go on, go on YouTube. You can see it there. Made in about 1967, I think it is. And basically, you're at a funeral, and the voiceover is the man who's died, and mm. he's talking about who, what he's leaving and who he's leaving it to. Uh, I, I'll say no more than that. But, but I always imagine going in to sell it to the client. You, know, you go in and you say, oh, this is, we're going to launch it. We've got this big new commercial for you. By the way, we're opening on a funeral. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're doing what? Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're opening on a funeral. Really? What? Why, would, what, why would anybody want to go? Yeah, no, no, it'll be great. Um, and by the way, and then there's a voiceover. All oh, right, all oh, good, the uh, voiceover. But that's the man who's died. What? I'm at a funeral and the voiceover is the man who's done. Well, watch it. It is Mm. absolutely brilliant. It's a masterclass in writing. It's a masterclass in what you can do, and it's a great example of how humour overcomes everything. Mm. And I, I think that's the other thing we've forgotten: we, we're not funny anymore in advertising. Mm. We're kind of, you know, it was instructional; they're telling you what to do, do this, and words come up on screens. And mm. we haven't engaged; we're not emotional; we're not driving people to get to a point of view themselves by yeah. sort of laughing and smiling. And this is this is that's the ad I would take to. Uh, to my grave, so to
0: speak right um, now last question if you could I'll ask you too well you could go back and meet a just recently entered the industry John Hegarty before you were sir what advice would you give John Hegarty now with all your well, I mean it's worked out pretty well for you So, maybe, or maybe what advice would you give anybody <laughs> starting a career now your advice would probably be just do whatever you're going to do don't doubt yourself so give um, with somebody just starting what advice someone rings you someone entering the industry saying oh I don't know if advertising is a good career what advice would you give them
1: well, the first thing I, I say to everybody, get as close as you can to making the idea and to having the idea. Um, but so if, if you develop that as a skill, the ability to have ideas, you can then transfer that skill from advertising to other industries and you will have huge value. So having the idea is crucial and fundamentally important. Get as close as you possibly can to doing that. If you're doing that, then that's a skill that you can transfer to other industries if you don't want to carry on in advertising, if you want to be a a novelist or you want to go off and paint pictures. Advertising is the most brilliant profession at teaching you how to kind of muster and market your skills. But Mm. it is about having the idea. If you're just involved on the technology side, the trouble is technology is going to dispense with all kinds of skills in advertising. Mm. It will create new skills. So be careful. I mean, when I came into the industry, we had typographers, Mm -hmm. and they used to cast off type and show you how much space the type would take. Gone. Don't Mm -hmm. need them anymore, because you can do it with a button on a computer. Mm -hmm. So I would say to them, get as close as you possibly do come into the industry, come in believing in something, passionate about it, look at great work, understand what's happened in the past, it has a value, and then get as close as you can to having the idea. And changing the way the world thinks and feels.
0: Excellent, right, John? It has been an absolute pleasure, and you know I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks so much for doing it, um, little old podcast pleasure, in though. Ireland. We're lucky to have advertising royalty. Thank you so much for doing it, and oh, uh, thank you. Yes, thank you. and it has been a great pleasure. So, what what are you up to now at the moment? Just before we go, what what keeps you busy?
1: What keeps me busy? Well, all kinds of things. I I, I have um, for all kinds of completely mad reasons. I have a vineyard in France. Why did I ever do that? I don't know but I love it'm I'm, I'm basically a farmer again you know my, my father was a, a dairy farmer from um, County Cork and I think I'm sure he's in his, in his grave now saying, oh my god, what's he <laughs> done Oh no I got out and he'd gone back in again so I'm doing that and then I go into uh, uh, I'm helping young companies grow and develop uh, and so I've been kept very very busy never the other thing is I never retire. Yeah. When yeah. anybody says to me, oh, I'm thinking of retiring, it's kind of like you're putting the plug out. I'm going yeah. into the waiting room. I'm I'm, d- I'm just waiting to be called now. Never, ever retire. Yeah. It's too interesting. No. It's too interesting yeah, no. doing great things.
0: I agree. I agree. And yeah, I mean, we might not have the options that you'd have because, you know, as I say, you've been a brilliant career, brilliant ideas, man, and, and just a brilliant creative person. And I put all that down to the fact of your Irish roots. I think that's entirely down to your Irish roots, your, your creativity. <laughs> so um, I
1: well, I would say actually that I, I think there's an element of truth in that. And and we, when we talk about outsiders, you know, well, well, you know, I grew up in you know a very Irish household. My mother was Irish, my father was Irish, and my, my great aunt came to live with us, and she was from Cork. So I I kind of had this. I, I was living in this world, and then I'd step outside, and I'd have my friends who were outside, and I realized there were differences, and so I became. That's where my ability as an observer was Mm. developed, you know, and I I was able to watch and see how it was done in one way or how Uh, the language was used in a different way over there. And that helped me enormously, but I'm I'm naturally, naturally very, very proud of my Irish roots. Love it. Uh, I I was lucky in that sense, and uh, uh, it's something I would always talk about and be proud of. Um, it was brilliant so thank you Ireland yeah no problem no (laughs) problem yeah you're welcome
0: you're welcome we're (laughs) glad we could help Uh, right listen John I've kept you long (laughs) enough thank you so much so that's it that's all she wrote folks we are out of time again thanks for joining me today John it was a real pleasure and a big thank you also to Andrea and sound and Keir in marketing and as always thank you to our partners the Irish Times Media Solutions If you like this episode, then follow us, tell your colleagues, listen back to some other great episodes. You'll find all our episodes by simply typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice. So until next time, stay safe.
1: The Inside Marketing Podcast,
0: brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.